Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's program, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Charles L. Chavis, who's Assistant Professor of Conflict Analysis and Resolution in History and Director of the John Mitchell Jr. Program for History, Justice, and Race at the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University, and Ajene S. Roundtree, who's a PhD student at George Mason University. She graduated with honors from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. As a cultural anthropologist, much of her work seeks to elucidate the hidden narratives of women, specifically Black women, within the context of human rights and peace, with an understanding of their interconnections to globalization, justice, social movements, and social change. And they are both part of this wonderful new project, this anthology, For the Sake of Peace, Africana Perspectives on Racism, Justice, and Peace in America, which is edited by Charles L. Chavis, Jr. And Sixte Vigne Nimuraba. I didn't pronounce that well. So, Charles, how do you pronounce that? Yes, you did a great job. You did a great okay. job. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome to Race and Democracy to you both. And I want, Charles, since you're the co-editor, tell us about this anthology. What inspired you to edit For the Sake of Peace? Wow. So first and foremost, I want to thank you, Dr. Joseph, for your amazing work and for this opportunity. And I also want to give a special shout out to uh, my future boss, Ajene Roundtree, (laughs) who I had the honor of working alongside and with. Um, but yes, so for the sake of peace, it was a idea that came together um, around 2019, the summer of 2019. There was a summit that right outside of D.C. Um, at the um, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School. We have a retreat center there and there was a peace building summit of with activists, social justice leaders and peace builders from across the world. And, you know, we came together and I, I connected with Brother Vinny, who um, is my co-editor. In this, in the midst of the Trump administration, we were contemplating and wrestling, you know, what does peace look like in the United States and what does justice look like? And we recognized that at that moment and during the, you know, this phase of the black freedom struggle, that the time for a peace that's not centered in justice has passed. Right. And so this is kind of where we began to look and to consider um, the canon, if you will, within the larger scholarship of peace and conflict resolution. And what you notice is that in many ways, it is a whitewashed canon. What's unfortunate about the specific history of the field is that you have Black voices that have always informed the uh, movement for peace building. In fact, you know, arguably the founder of the peace building studies was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, right? But why is he not known um, in the field as a scholar in the ways in which individuals such as Johan Galtung and others are known. And so this work sought to salvage the um, intellectual experience and knowledge of Black activist scholars and future peace builders around, you know, what peace, a justice-centered peace looks like in the United States. And so that was the main goal. And we really want to invert the traditional paradigm associated with peace studies that where we have, you know, Eurocentric or white male perspectives offered in regards to approaching peace in countries where oppressed people and people of color um, inhabit. So that's kind of like the framework and foundation behind the the book and the idea. 
And the book is divided into three parts. Part one is racism, a systemic thing. Part two, knowing the past, narrative change and the historical perspective. And part three, Africana cultural and religious perspectives on peace. And Ajanae, uh, this question's for you. Tell us about your piece. You're in part two, from Birmingham to Monrovia, Black women and the weight slash weight of freedom, 1960 to 2005. Uh, you talk about Monrovia and sort of these Black women who were precursors both in the past and uh, in the 21st century, but also Black women who were organizers during the Birmingham freedom struggle and sort of write them back into that narrative in ways that they've been erased. Sure. So my chapter is part of a longer a longer work that is actually my master's thesis. And my goal was to introduce a comparative study. And while it's not perfect, the most important part was exactly what you said, to write Black women back into our understanding of the freedom struggle full stop. And it was very important for me to focus on Birmingham because that's where I lived but also because of Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail and the Magnificent Seven and Fred Shuttlesworth and the role of men specifically in Birmingham and their presence in the civil rights movement and how Birmingham was thrust into the national spotlight because of the arrival, so to speak, in quote unquote, of Dr. King and Elsie Elsie. But for me, I I was curious and began to question whether that was actually how it all went down. And my research shows that that is actually not how it went down. The women, Black mothers, Black teachers, Black homemakers were actually the leaders of the movement. And because we're talking about segregated Birmingham, we're also talking about respectability politics and the the culture of dissemblance. We're talking about all these things that position Black women continually at the bottom of the social hierarchy, racial hierarchy as well. It was important for me to bring those women to the top and say that in and of themselves, how they live their lives as children and their decisions that they made as adults actually positioned them And we would call them leaders if they were male. So why are we not calling them leaders because they're women? And then adding the Monrovia piece was important to me because in Liberia, two women, two Liberian women have won the Nobel Peace Prize because of their work. That is Lema Bowie and former president of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. But their names are not recognized at all. And so when we're talking about peace and the movement of peace and what that looks like in a conflict zone or a post-conflict zone, women are, as Lema Bowie says, often the, the victims or the people that we tell stories about and only want to talk to them because they've been survivors of war, not leaders of movements. And so it was imperative that I that I looked at what those women did amid a war that caused the men to go out and the boys to go out and fight. And the women literally were staying behind and saving the country from devastation. So 
these two parallel instances of women leading movements that needed to be shared and added to the overall understanding of what peace and peace building and peacekeeping looks like. Oh, that's terrific. And I'm going to follow up on that uh, before going back to uh, Charles. When you think about the work of people like Danielle McGuire and The Dark End of the Street, mm-hmm. obviously you cite Belinda Rodnett, How Long, How Long, but the, the work of Black feminist theorists, but also scholars of Black women's history within the civil rights movement, my colleague Ashley Farmer on Black Power, mm-hmm. uh, Robin Spencer, Jean Theo Harris on Rosa Parks, uh, since there's now much more of an acknowledgement of Black women's roles in shaping the Black liberation struggle and the Black freedom struggle, uh, and you cite Anna Julia Cooper, and I'm thinking, and you cite the, the great quote that Paula Giddings used for a 1984 masterpiece, When and Where I Enter, and Paula has the great biography of Ida B. Wells, uh, and so does Mia Bay. What happens when we write Black women into peace studies and we look at their political thought and praxis as generative in the context of Birmingham and Monrovia, but just globally? What's the impact? Well, the impact is that you get a, a completely different perspective, right? You get a perspective of of a person or a group of people who, as Mary Church Terrell, ha- live at the intersection of a double oppression, right? But not just a double oppression, because if we think about how many women have disabilities or how many women have a, you know, our sexuality or our socioeconomic standing. So we have, we have this putting Black women into peace studies and allowing our knowledge production to be a part of that conversation allows for a more holistic approach to understanding peace and understanding the the making, the building, and the keeping part of peace as it moves towards justice. Because Black women, as you know, um, are on the cutting edge, even though statistically and societally, we are often left behind or viewed as outsiders or extra or whatever. But even if we look at how Stacey Abrams, the single work that she did in Georgia, I mean, that wouldn't have happened. And we cannot look at the 2020 election without understanding the importance of Black women, full stop. And as we move forward, Black women being a part of that conversation is imperative to how we begin to change the tide, turn the tide and move this country and move disciplines and fields towards a justice approach because we come with a binary that other that other groups don't have. Great. Thank you. Charles, in the introduction, you talk about this post-truth society and you say one of the things that this book is trying to do is to invert the theoretical framing Uh, prevalent in most peace and conflict scholarship. Now, we both teach at public policy schools. I teach at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, and certainly 
I don't think that they're, yes, necessarily centering um, people like Dr. King and all yeah. these Black folks in terms of peace and conflict studies. So so what happens paradigmatically when we frame and we, you start the book with a quote from Nelson Mandela, mm-hmm. when we put, well, whether it's Nelson or Winnie Mandela, when we put these Black leaders and these Black thought leaders, but also grassroots activists central to peace and conflict studies, What's the new narratives that emerge? Because you you hint at that in the intro, and certainly the twelve chapters that follow, each in their own ways, including Ajane's chapter, try to elucidate and amplify uh, on that theme. I think you know so one of the main things that you know I discovered um, as a historian. I'm actually the first historian to be hired at the Carter School for Peace and Conflict Studies in its 40 year history. And so um, something that, you know, is so important to me is the work of narrative change. Right. And in that, what I was able to identify and notice from the onset, when I began to survey the field, I noticed various similarities in the origins of the field and various similarities to the leaders, um, whether it's the rhetoric speeches um, musings of um, civil rights leaders, including King and others. And I noticed similarities between those uh, musings and that of white scholars who really um, shaped and laid the foundation for the field to this day. And, and it, it took place right around the 1960s. And actually, King's letter from a Birmingham jail, a lot of people don't realize, um, but his definitions of negative and positive peace were surprisingly very similar to the definitions proposed by Johann Galtung um, in a few um, days or months later, following the letters from the Birmingham jail in which, and where Galtung in the Journal for Peace Studies um, talks about the black freedom struggle in in relationship to larger freedoms struggles and how there are these, um, there are these negative forms and positive forms of peace, which (laughs) to me, you know, I see that as being violence, narrative violence, right, from the beginning as it relates to the overall field. And in many ways, these works shed light onto the ways in which um, Black scholars, activists, and intellectuals have always been a part of the movement for peace building. Um, However, they've not been a part and accepted in the larger canon. But their influences permeate throughout the canon, whether they are acknowledged or not. In many ways, this work sought to acknowledge those voices, um, acknowledge the various ways in which Um, You know, our struggles were used in many ways as case studies by white scholars, right, Um, who who, who failed um, to even give credit to leaders such as Dr. King, not not to mention earlier leaders, including Ida B. Wells, Annie Jula Cooper um, and Jane Addams as well, who was one of the individuals, again, early individuals who developed the concept of positive peace. Right. She's nowhere to be found in this work in the larger canon. Neither is um, King as a scholar um, or any of the activists who are informing the, the um, overall field. And that's what I find to be really, you know, found to be really disturbing in terms of my assessment and research. Um, but like I said, each of these works provide access to and promote narrative change, which, you know, when we think about systemic racism, the overall theme in the first section of chapters, I want us to look at this systemic racism and the way it manifests in terms of um, intellectualism and the ways in which we conceptualize our um, disciplines. You know, it's one thing to talk about the structural inequalities, but what does this look like in terms of 
um, the narrative violence that emerges within a field that has oppressed um, marginalized voices that in many ways um, have kept the movement afloat. Um, In many ways, just as um, Ajene mentioned, um, Black women have kept our democracy alive. I see Black people and people of color and marginalized voices as keeping the field of peace and conflict studies alive without getting any recognition for doing so. Right. Okay, and let's talk about Gail Christopher's Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Framework. And really building on that, how can that notion of racial healing, especially in this year of 2020, be utilized both in terms of public policy, but also cultural transformation? Um, And that question is really to both of you. I can go first. I'm so glad you brought that up, Doc, because we recently um, have established the um, USTRH movement, um, and we've been working closely with um, Senator Booker and Congresswoman Barbara Lee's offices around attempting to um, get the nation's first um, truth commission established. Um, And that was recently, um, Cory Booker recently put out a um, press release announcing a uh, Senate, a joint Senate resolution between him and um, Congresswoman Lee. And so I'm honored to be a part of that process. But I'm also, prior to the work that I'm doing with um, Dr. Christopher and others as a part of the movement, I was intrigued and um, by her work. And But I was not shocked to see that it was not noticed or recognized in the large in the field, right? Um, that was something that was really astonishing to me when I looked at her approaches to narrative change and the, the framework in which she developed while she was the vice president at the Kellogg Foundation. Um, you know, I was extremely shocked to see that this was not engaged within the um, overall field of peace building, um, conflict resolution studies, or works around a scholarship around narrative change. Um, and so, um, you know, I think her, her framework is essential because she looks at what We've learned from the international perspective um, and she the end game really is about transformation, which um, is much different than reconciliation, which um, she argues and other scholars argue. And many pe- practitioners that I work with argue that 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 type of reconciliation is not something that can be realized in the United States um, because we, the, the playing field was never level in the beginning. And so. Her approach is more of a social transformation or justice-centered approach, and um, the healing comes along with that. But before the healing takes place, you have to have truth, and that's why we narrative change is the center um, and the first thing that we have to center on because we know from history um, and living that you know white supremacy thrives off of the suppression of narrative, right? And if that is the case, then the truth has to be told, whether it's in um, our in courtrooms, whether it's, um, you know, in, in the classrooms, right? The truth has to be told. And for me, in many ways, it hasn't, right? And so that's why your work is important um, as a, a groundbreaking historian. But all the works of, you know, Black scholars and marginalized scholars is important because truth has to be centered in this moment. Um, and we need more buy-in from our white brothers and sisters. But at the end of the day, we can't wait for them to, you know, believe us, right? We have to really look towards, um, take those along with us who want who want to go and those who don't, you know, we got to keep it moving because at the end of the day, we're no longer um, negotiating and having uh, about our human rights. 
you know, we're, we're, if justice is now on the table, there's really no point of a conversation. And I think that the utility of Dr. Christopher's framework, um, it, it allows people to come on board that wouldn't traditionally come on board, but justice is still centered and it's a part of the transformational aspect that comes along the way, right? Um, while we work through this racial healing, but it's important to understand also that this racial healing um, does not come at the expense of re-traumatizing marginalized communities, right? Um, who oftentimes are forced to come to the table and be a part of pseudo restorative justice processes in which they again have to go to their white brothers and sisters or to confess and talk about their truths, their lived experiences with trauma, rape, um, land dispossession, et cetera, generational trauma, historical trauma, only in the hopes that their white brothers and sisters would believe them this time. The days for that are over. Um, and if we're going to be telling our truth, then we need to be having power brokers at the table um, prepared to provide justice um, and to level the playing field and bring us the justice we deserve. And Ajene, really the same question, but when it comes to the Black women that you've been studying in your, your graduate work and your thesis, and when you think about Birmingham and Monrovia, and you mentioned Stacey Abrams, um, what would the role ideally, because in certain ways Black women are doing this already, and Black feminism and intersectional justice has already been doing it through BLM, but what would the ideal role of Black women be uh, both as um, grassroots activists, organizers, but the everyday Black women that Patricia Collins talks about as well. Uh, what would the role of Black women be in this idea of racial healing and not having, um, like Charles has been talking about, reconciliation on the cheap? And one of the essays in here talks about that too. What would the ideal role of Black women be in that context? And is that happening at the local, national, global level in certain areas already? Wow, um, that is that is a difficult question, right? Um, I think I think first, in order for us to arrive at truth, black black people can't be the only only ones telling their truth, right? We have to white people have to be able to recognize what their whiteness has gotten them, um, and that is also a part of what we need to what we as society as well as a globe need to begin to work on. Um, what is whiteness? What are the privileges that come with being white? And how do you recognize yourself as being white as a race, right? As, as, a, as a part of the racial hierarchy that you created, that your ancestors created, right? And I think that is, that's usually important because um, as as we know from Emacy Zare, like we can't we can't begin to have conversations about deconstructing colonization and imperialism and whiteness unless white people understand the the historical trauma that their whiteness has on them as well, right? Um, so that would be first point. I think the second point is to the question about where black women would fit in this conversation. I think black women. It is on white people and black men to recognize black women as producers of knowledge and give us room to stand in the space. Um, black women are pushing doors open um, only to be confronted by 
white and black men who say you don't belong here or are intimidated by our knowledge or are concerned that they might be overlooked or they didn't come up with the idea or whatever, blah, 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 blah. And so there has to be space for black men to allow black women to step into their role as leader, not just as a supporting act. Um, And that stepping into that position as a leader is not an infringement on your right to be a man, right? Or the, the, the space in which you have been garnered to be a man for a particular, particular space. Um, I think that's also part of, part of that conversation that needs to happen. But I think the third part of it is, from my perspective as a, as a human rights scholar, um, we can't have racial healing and we can't have our, our a path towards justice until we, until society begins to humanize the marginalized. And I say that because on the surface, it's easy to say, oh, that's a black person. But if I'm treated or I'm perceived as an animal, that's how I, that's how I die in the street, right? I'm not perceived as a human being. So until I, until black and brown and marginalized voices are humanized by those in power, white people, then the conversations about racial healing and truth and justice and how we arrive at peace are are going to are going to continue to be secular. And we need to we need to begin to understand what what is it like, what does it look like for me to give you to see you as a human being, a human being that is deserving of the right to be human, right? And then everything that comes um, uh, that's listed in the, in the Declaration of Human Rights. Now, uh, this is to, to Charles and to Ajene, to both of you again. Um, when you think about an anthology like this, the subtitle is Africana Perspectives on Racism, Justice, and Peace in America. Um, the work I do is on both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., among many others. And they were global human rights activists. Um, King obviously was one of the world's foremost peace activists. Uh, But the Black liberation, the Black freedom struggle, that tradition uh, has really been written out of uh, peace and conflict studies. And that's one of the reasons why this this book is in existence. Um, What can we do to transform that? And how can we bring the theory that at least Black peace and conflict studies and Black internationalism and Black human rights uh, work that analysis into contemporary analysis of not just global peace movements, but domestic peace movements. Because I'm thinking about this election, we're thinking about the recruitments of white supremacy domestically in the United States, but also in the context of Brexit and the increase in anti-Black racism, white supremacy, assaults against women, anti-Semitism, uh, globally, but also domestically, what what can be done, and how can um, black scholars like yourselves, who are intervening in this paradigm, how can you utilize your work to talk about global human rights, but to talk about it reaching that universal through the particular lens and experience of black people? Yeah, I, I can speak for you know what I've been doing since I've been at the Carter School, you know. 
it's a constant centering. And it's almost as if, you know, even though we see the the um, ways in which the black black scholars and intellectuals are, are um, and peace builders are overlooked, you know, it's almost as if, you know, we ignore it and push through as if everyone knew about it. Right. And so for me, like even in my work, like in my classes, my, whether it's undergrad or grad classes, I would be assigning either, you know, a book like yours, Sword and Shield or um, Cornell West. I'm not Cornell West, but um, James Cone's um, Malcolm and Martin America. Right. These are the type of works that I'm putting in my on my syllabus and I'm forcing students who would otherwise have never seen such works um, or such voices um, to, to, to engage them. Right. And then I guess the way it grows is you have colleagues who, um, who learn about your teaching and ask about it and it kind of grows from there, but that's something that I'm doing from a practical standpoint in in terms of my teaching and pedagogy. I'm purposefully, you know, staying true to myself as a historian and focusing on the lived experiences and the narratives of individuals, um, who are part of the black freedom struggle. And I see them, of course, most of them, of course, as we know, did not see themselves as peace builders, but they were indeed peace builders nonetheless. And we can't wait for um, individuals to categorize them as such or to be honored and dignified in terms of the academy to put them on our syllabi, right? Um, And so the work that I'm doing is, as I mentioned, with students, specifically at the undergraduate level, is really about putting putting before them, you know, Ida B. Wells' red record and looking at the ways in which um, she emerged as an international anti-lynching advocate and what it meant for her as a black woman to speak um, about anti-lynch, about against lynching um, in Great Britain and um, in the United States, right? Um, and, and how the ways in which her status um, as a black woman allowed her to receive more honor abroad than it did um you know, at home. Right. And so I think exposing that, exposing students to those lived experiences and those narratives is essential. And that's really the beginning. But I think it's also important that our colleagues um, understand the intellectual violence within the field and understand the ways in which systemic racism is represented within the various fields that we study. And we have to do a better job of promoting a more, you know, anti-racist approach and um decolonizing um, the fields as we know it, the genres as we know it. We have to be more purposeful in that. And I think that happens through promoting the marginalized um, narratives and lived experiences of um, thought leaders, peace builders, and activists. Yeah. I, I You raise a good point about um, how individuals who are doing the work don't necessarily cl- classify themselves as peace builders, um, they're just they're just fighting for justice. They're fighting for their story to be heard or told properly. Um, and I think I think that's the importance of education, right? And I I personally feel as uh, an individual who is you know one of a few black faces in a white space, um, uh, staring down the academy, going um, I'm important, and you have lived a life of racial inequality in your education, in your method of teaching. And that is unacceptable for me um, in 2020. And I need you to do better. And so what, what does that doing better look like? That looks like you acknowledging the fact that you need to do better. You need to be better. And you need to look at your 
your library, your personal library, and acknowledge where the gaps are. Um, and I think that is a hard, that's a hard place for many scholars to be, particularly in a field where, um, as Dr. Chavis has said, the field has been so white and they are leaning so heavily on white scholarship. And for a, a person who has been a research subject for so long to come in and say, this is not an, this is not right. And you're not doing the best that you can do. And I have a voice and I am creative and people who look like me are, are, are knowledge producers and have been doing this work actually longer than you think. And we need to be included in this, in this, in this conversation included on syllabi and you need to redo canon um, maybe we should just throw out the canon and put everybody in it. Um, I don't know, but I, I think that's part of where the conversation is going, right? And where where I personally feel that is my responsibility as a scholar to force the field to look at themselves, right? To force the fields to have a look at where the the intellectual violence and the narrative violence is occurring in private. Um, that is contradictory to what we're saying in public and enforcing them basically to to have to have integrity right to be to be honorable and to rise to the standard by which they have set themselves the pedestal on which we've set ourselves as as scholars to actually to actually seek out the knowledge that we don't have about certain things and that that plays into our understanding of of human rights, right? If if we are fighting for human rights, but are exclusive in our friendships, or exclusive in our relationships, or exclusive in the the books that we have on our our shelves, are we actually? Um, how can we then say that we are inclusive in our pursuit for justice, or inclusive for in our pursuit for anything else? Because we only limited ourselves in our private lives to to be exclusive therefore that doesn't match our public life so um yeah i would I, I think we have to we have to ensure that there is there's a balance in both our private and our public life so that um the pursuits that we have public policy um changing canon education matches up with what we're doing in private as well all right and my last question to both of you is how are you feeling in the aftermath of this election and what we're facing with this COVID-19 pandemic, the racial disparities, what's happening all across uh, the world, really, uh, with economic inequality, racial division, uh, the political polarization in the United States, but at the same time, because of George Floyd and the protest in Black Lives Matter 2.0, 15 to 26 million people out in the streets, uh, wanting anti-racism, wanting social justice, wanting to create a new world, and really seeing those sympathy demonstrations globally as well. Um, so how are you How are you both feeling? And, and Charles, we'll start with you. Uh, and then Ajine, you could just, you can, you can complete us. Thank you, Doc. I'm so glad you asked that timely question. I'm doing a lot better after the week-long election, to be, to be quite <laughs> honest. Um, you know, I think for me, I always knew that if the we were able to win the youth um, and the end of the interracial coalition that had emerged following the um, death of um, George Floyd, um, 
as well as, you know, Brianna Taylor, that I knew that we would be in good shape and to, um, to win the election. But there was always a fear of, of, of fear, right? Um, because the, the youth, as I've always said before, this generation, the, you know, as you mentioned, Black Lives Matter 2.0, they're, they're not playing around, right? And they are seeking justice um, and nothing, um, nothing short of that. Um, because as I, I've said before, you know, we at this nation, we've just reached a point in which, you know, marginalized people are tired. Black people are tired and we've been tired before, but it is a, you know, I think we're at a unique moment in which we're witnessing what could be the um, largest civil rights movement of the 21st century that is um, taking shape. Um, you know, I'm just so ho- thankful for the black women specifically, um, who, again, um, in many ways saved our democracy. The night of the election, as they were tabulating votes, I had, I was hoping, you know, that we were going to get Georgia, which we eventually did. And I began to stalk um, a small town reporter in Clayton County who um, was covering the um, the ballot counting there in Clayton. And um, she sent a photograph of four black women who were packing up their pocketbooks and they were heading out for the night. Right. Um, and that image reminded me of women such as Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, um, Dorothy Height, Dr. Dorothy Height and others, and the ways in which they were black women again um, saved our democracy. Um, and, you know, so that's, um, <laughs> those are just my reflections. Yeah. I'm excited and nervous at the same time. I'm over the moon to have a black woman who's of South Asian descent as our incoming vice president. What that, what all that means, I don't know, but I'm pumped. I'm so excited about, about Kamala Harris and her position and what that means for the future of 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 representation in politics, um, and and even what we're doing with um, Representative Barbara Lee and 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 that movement. Um, yet there's still so much to be done, and I guess that's where my nervousness comes in, or or my uncertainty, perhaps, is more the better word. I there's a lot to be done and there's uh, a lot of pushback. Um, and and we have to get those people who are pushing back. Maybe we don't have to turn them completely around, but we need them to begin to see themselves as, as part of the larger struggle, right? Um, I think that's the beauty of what Dr. King was beginning with the Poor People's Campaign and what William, Reverend William Barber is continuing to do. But we have to begin to get those people who are wholly angry, the 74 million people, maybe maybe not all 74 million, but maybe let's just take you know a half of that and begin to help them understand that justice includes them and the fight for democracy is not is not is not against them just because we we label ourselves liberal or democrat does not mean that i'm against you and you having having a great life and having healthcare and having 
access to clean water. And, and I think this is where, this is the moment where we are. And I think COVID, COVID has been, has been hugely, obviously hugely detrimental to the black community, but it, it isn't, it isn't solely a respect of persons, right? It, we're talking what 250 plus thousand Americans who have died. They, they've not all been black and they've not all been brown. And so if we can, if we can begin to help change the paradigm of, of, of people's thinking about justice and what that looks like for them, I think we are, we can, we can make this, this 2020 that has been such a, a disaster, uh, a stepping stone to something even better in the future. All right, let's end it there. We're going to end it on hope. Uh, for, <laughs> oh. for this, we've been talking with uh, Charles Chavis Jr. and Ajene Roundtree uh, about their new anthology, "For the Sake of Peace: Africana Perspectives on Racism, Justice, and Peace in America." Dr. Chavis is an assistant professor of conflict analysis. Uh, at George Mason University, and Ajene Roundtree is a cultural anthropologist who is finishing up her PhD at George Mason University and who's the author of uh, an important chapter in this anthology, From Birmingham to Monrovia, Black Women and the Weight of Freedom, 1960 to 2005. Uh, So Charles um, and Ajene, thank you so much for joining us here at Race and Democracy. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Doc. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.